0: Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m.
1: and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our reading today is from Mark 8. And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. All right. Pray with me again. Father, we come to a a serious text text with great weight, it is not that it is hard to understand the words, but they are hard words to take into the heart. So Father, I pray by your spirit this morning, give us ears to hear, minds to consider, hearts to receive. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would make me a vessel of your word that I would preach purely and clearly, that I would not be in the way of what you want to communicate today. I pray, Heavenly Father, that your Son would be lifted up and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We are at the beginning of part two of the Gospel of Mark. You... Probably remember uh, that we have been, since Easter, uh, looking at the first eight chapters of this gospel. We've called that series Lord, Son, Savior, as we've been seeing that Jesus, through his teaching and through his casting out demons, through his miracles, has been again and again and again demonstrating that he is the Lord, the Son of God, the Savior, to his disciples. And there have been two questions that were leading us in Lord, Son, and Savior. First of all, who is Jesus? And then second, what does it mean to follow him. And we got to the climax of that first half of the book three weeks ago, where we came to Peter's confession, where Peter finally recognized through the aid of of Jesus himself that he is in the presence of the Christ. And he confessed, you are the Christ. We recognize that this represents kind of the hinge of the gospel of Mark because up until that point, we have been in Galilee, we have been in the northern country, But as as soon as that confession is made, Jesus and the gospel makes a decisive turn to the south, heading to Jerusalem. And we see in our text today, uh, very quickly, the change in agenda. We're focusing now on an intense discipleship clinic for this band of disciples as they are going to head to Jerusalem and head to where Jesus' mission takes them, which is the cross. So as we get to this place, I think we see sort of a ratcheting up of the intensity of the gospel itself. We are seeing Jesus now turning towards the disciples and making sure that they understand what it means to be a disciple. And we recognize as we look at this passage that the disciples reveal they are unprepared for how the page turns, for the direction that Jesus now takes them. They had a different script in their head for who the Christ was. And as Jesus begins to talk in this passage, they're having to to jettison that script and discover an entirely new understanding of what it means to be the Christ. When I was a little kid, I had this uh, board game that uh, my grandmother bought for me. It was called Scategories Jr. And when I was a little kid, it was a game where you rolled a dice, got a letter, and filled in a bunch of, of answers based on their prompts uh, for, for that letter. And you got scored for every time you got a, a right answer based on knowing an animal that starts with the letter R, etc., given a certain amount of time. I love the game. I played Scategories JR just tons of time, and I got really good at it, and I won it a lot. And uh, as I got older, I kept playing it, and it just got easier and easier, and the wins got emptier and emptier because I knew all the answers almost beforehand. So the satisfaction of playing this game just kind of started disappearing. And that's when I recognized what the word JR meant. It's junior. I was playing the junior version of Scategories, and I had well graduated out of the age range of this game And so my satisfaction was low, my wins were empty, and there just wasn't anything in playing that game anymore that seemed to make it worthwhile. As I was thinking about that, I I wonder if perhaps that could describe some of our faith. Some of our faith. Have Have we started a faith? We were excited about a faith. We were invested in a faith. We learned all the Sunday school answers. And then for whatever reason, it seems like we're just kind of stalling, staying at the same place. Perhaps from the sermon last week where we talked about spiritual maturity, perhaps you're looking at, you know what, I just don't feel like I am growing in godliness. I don't feel like I'm becoming a model of the faith. Perhaps you're saying, for whatever reason, the faith that I have carried in me seems to have stalled. I think the example of of Scategories junior may be true of life. We grow up, when we're young, toys and games and all these things fascinate us, but as we get older, the toys have to get more expensive to hold our interest. I read a uh, a, a quote from a a book by David Lodge called Therapy, and it had a person that was in a, a counselor's office, and he was asked, put everything that is good in your life in one column and everything that's bad in your life in the other column. And this man wrote this, he said, in the good column, Professionally successful, well-off, good health, stable marriage, kids successfully launched into adult life, nice house, great car, as many holidays as I want. And under the bad column, he wrote just one thing, feel unhappy most of the time. This guy succeeded the American dream. This guy rocked the good life. It's all on the list. And yet for some reason, having all of that, experiencing all of that, he writes he is unhappy most of the time. I wonder if that describes perhaps some of us today. We've arrived. We've accumulated. We've experienced prosperity. We have all the toys that we want. We've gone on every vacation that we desire, or at least it's within our means. And yet when we're quiet and to ourself, We're unsettled. There's an emptiness. Perhaps we are actually playing the junior version of life. Perhaps we are actually playing the junior version of faith. Because if we're living with the question, is this it? Then we have been sold the junior version. Because there is so much more as our text today wants us to see. The key question of our text is this. What are you giving your life to? What are you giving your life to? It is something. You are giving your life to something. But is it worth it? Can it deliver you? Can it deliver on its promises? In our text today, literally, Jesus seems to be taking away the junior version of discipleship from his band of 12 to give them the full adult version of discipleship. Here he is going to give us what is the crux of the gospel. And that is this, for you to have life, for you to have the abundant life of the gospel, for you to have the eternal life of the gospel, I have to die. And you do too. Those are hard words. Do we want to give away the junior version? Do we want the adult version on those terms? My hope is as we go through this text, you will see that Jesus' call to discipleship is the way of true life and meaning. That you will take hold of the adult version. That you will take hold of discipleship as he offers it to you. And to do that, we must grasp in this text three crucial deaths that bring us into gospel life. The first we're going to see, the first crucial death, is this, the death of Christ for us. The first crucial death to bring us into gospel life is the death of Christ for us. We start in uh, our very first verse, verses uh, 31. Let me read it again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Here we see that Jesus has gone into the next stage of the narrative of discipleship. He began to teach them. This is something new, something that he had not been uh, describing to them in any detail in the past. But now he is taking the time to focus upon their understanding of who the Christ is, beginning to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. The key word in all of that is the word must. The word must. The Son of Man, which is a title for Christ, for Jesus, is saying that he must suffer. The Greek is the simple little verb, day, which means it is necessary. Jesus is saying that what is about to happen is necessary, is not optional, is not one choice of many. It is inevitable, it is inexorable, it is necessary. It must happen. It is used in synonym to the phrase, it is written regarding scripture. And so if we go back into our Old Testament, into Genesis chapter three, verse 15, we will hear the first announcement of the gospel, where we are told by God to the, to speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, in, in God's word right there, He spoke something, and because He spoke something, it now has to be fulfilled. He made a promise that one was going to come from the offspring of the woman that would be attacked, that would be injured, but that would also crush the head of the serpent. The moment that those words are spoken, the moment that God has made that promise, he is now obligated to fulfill it. It must happen. The choice of not sending a savior is gone because God has obligated himself by his word and he cannot lie. And so it is necessary because it is written. God's promise to fulfill that promise and many others have obligated that the Christ must come and suffer. He must have his wound to bring us healing. He must die. But the necessity is even more than just it's God's word. We can understand the necessity of Jesus coming and dying on a logical level. If you go to Paul's letter of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 21, Paul recognizes what the gospel is when he says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Another way we could say that is, if there is another way for salvation to be brought, if there is another way for man to be redeemed, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, think about that. If there is another way, God did not have to send his son to die on the cross. God did not have to send his most beloved one, his only begotten child, to be on the cross and cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he is a perfect heavenly father. If there was any other way, you know that in the infinite and perfect wisdom and goodness of God, that other way would have been chosen. The fact that Christ had to be sent Christ had to suffer, Christ had to die, Christ had to rise again, is because there is no other way. This is the way for God to fulfill His promise to redeem the offspring of the woman. We understand this again in our very text. If you look down at verse 37, It says, for what can man give in return for his soul? What can man give in return for his soul? In verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Do you understand that that Jesus is saying, your soul cannot be purchased by putting the whole world and all its values and treasures and worthiness in the balance? All the riches of the world cannot purchase your soul. You cannot ransom your soul by having everything. Like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. They did not have enough to stop death. And so there is nothing in us, there is nothing in this world that could possibly redeem and ransom us. It must come from God. It must be Christ alone. That is why this series has taken the name King's ransom. King's ransom is a phrase that we use to say a great price. But when we recognize the gospel message, the gospel message is this, that the king was the only one, our God was the only one that could pay the price for our sins. And that price was his own son whom he gave when we celebrate the gospel, we are celebrating the fact that God so loved the world as sinful and rebellious and treacherous and treasonous as it is that he gave the only thing that could ransom us from the grave, his one and only son, so that all who believe in him might have everlasting life. We must recognize If we are going to receive the gospel, the first crucial death is that Christ had to die for us. Do you believe in him? Have you trusted in him? Second, the second crucial death that brings us into gospel life, looking at verses 32 and 33, is this the death of our comfortable. Jesus, the death of our comfortable Jesus. Now to explain uh, the meaning of that point, let me give some context, some overview. Peter has just heard this shocking phrase that the Christ who he has just confessed must suffer and die by the rulers of Jerusalem, by the rulers of Israel, that he must die sentenced to death by the authorities of the Torah. This is shocking to him. This does not fit the narrative of what he has been raised at his mother's knee to believe. You see, everybody in Israel at this time was living on this hope. Someday, God is going to fulfill his promise, and he is going to destroy the Roman occupiers and give us again our country and our freedom and our way of life. The Messiah, the Christ, was a conqueror, was a destroyer of the nations that opposed Israel. And you can see that that was a, a great comfort. That was a comfortable thought. That was a comfortable hope. They put up with the Romans. They put up with the occupation. They put up with the abuse because they were comforted that someday the, the, the Christ was going to come with a sword and wipe out the oppressors. We we see some of this coming out uh, in Psalm chapter 2. I mean, the, the the conquering of the Messiah is part of the story. And so they had fixed on these, on these verses from the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 9 says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now think of those words when the Romans are occupying you, when the Romans are taxing you, when the Romans are saying when you can do this and when you can do that. When the Romans are causing sacrilege to all of your holy sites, you're reading these words, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Oh, the comfort that those words would provide. That is such a comfort to the hope of Israel. And so, The comfortable Jesus was one, or the comfortable Christ, I should say, was the one who was going to come in victory and honor and destroy the oppressors and the enemy. The disciples' comfortable Jesus was one that was going to give them honor and places to sit next to him because they're the early adopters. They bought in early, and so they're going to get honor. You follow the the next couple chapters, and you'll come up to these disputes, who gets to sit at your right hand? Who gets to sit at your left hand? Uh, John's mother even comes and, and tries to make the request, Because they were expecting the hope of the Christ was going to set them up. It was going to give them a comfortable existence on this, on the right side of history, as a victory. In, 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 in fact, when we think about the Pharisees and all the conflicts we've looked at, the Pharisees are operating with the same mindset. Their comfortable Christ was the one that was going to see them as the lawgivers, or not the law givers, the law keepers, the ones who were doing everything right. And so when the Christ came to conquer, he was going to make the Pharisees the, the, the special people in the kingdom. And so the Pharisees were comforted by the hope of Christ because it really helped them. It made them successful. It made their life worthwhile. It is because of this understanding of the Messiah as a conqueror, which was so deeply ingrained in the first century that we come across in the Gospel of Mark again and again these strange phrases where Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody about me. If you go back immediately to verse 30, chapter 8, verse 30, after Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus strictly charges him not to say this to anyone. The reason is, the understanding of what the Christ was was so loaded with this conquering baggage, this vindication and deliverance baggage of the nation, that nobody could understand Jesus' true mission with that word alone. They had to be taught, and they had to see the rest of Jesus' mission before they could understand the meaning of the Christ. And so that is the reason we come across that phrase, which is called the messianic secret. But the point is, what was comfortable about the, the Christ was that it was going to lift them up and put their enemies down. It's a comfortable thought. It's a great thought. When we talk about the word comfortable, we're talking about a Christ that fits our expectations, that takes our side, that points across the aisle and says, that's the problem. That's the comfortable Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter after Peter comes to him and says, this can't be true, you need to stop talking like this. And it's, it's, it's humorous. In Garland's commentary, we see where Peter has gone in this passage. Peter quickly plummets, Garland says, from the brightest student with his A-plus answer, you are the Christ, to class dunce, when he insists that Jesus must conform to his expectations of what the Messiah should, and should not do. So we have, you're the Christ to get behind me, Satan. I mean, this is a pretty remarkable reversal. Uh, From the highest possible recognition of his confession to suddenly being looped into the camp of the enemy, Satan. And a stunning, stunning reversal, but so deeply baked in to Peter's understanding of the hope of Israel was this idea that Jesus will vindicate faithful Israel and destroy all of the nations, and, 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 and we expect that here and now, that, that he was that confused when he spoke to Jesus. And it's understandable. It's understandable. The reason is that many of the passages about the suffering servant had not been understood in light of the Messiah. So when you look at Isaiah 53, they just weren't looking at those those verses. So what is it that's going on when Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are setting upon your mind upon the the things of, of man, not upon the things of God. Get behind me, Satan. To the disciple that confessed him. What's gone wrong? Well, Get behind me, Satan. This is not the first time that Jesus has said these words. If you go over to the Gospel of Matthew, to the temptations, the third temptation, we read this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Peter got the exact same rebuke, be gone Satan, that Jesus gave to Satan in the temptation. What is the point of connection here? Why is what Peter said so damaging, so threatening, that it it, it received the same rebuke? Well, think about the offer. The offer that Satan was making to Jesus in that temptation. I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All you have to do is worship me. What's he offering? What's he wanting Jesus to take? All the kingdoms. He can be the king. He can be the ruler of the world over every kingdom. He can accomplish whatever he wills. He can bring to pass whatever policy he wants. You want to remove poverty? Go right ahead. You want to remove world hunger? Go right ahead. You want to bring an end to terrorism? Go right ahead. You want to pass the entire platform of your preferred political party? Go right ahead. You can have all of that. That's not the fight for Satan. The fight for Satan is that Jesus is going to die on the cross to kill the power of sin. And so we need to recognize something very important here. A comfortable Jesus is a, comf- is a Jesus that comes and doesn't take the cross. A Christ without the cross is the comfortable Jesus. And that's really what the Pharisees wanted. That's what the disciples wanted. And if we think hard and look upon ourselves, we have to recognize that a Christ without the cross appeals to many of us too. It is a Christ without the cross that is being preached in the health and wealth gospel. You want to be rich? You want to be healthy? Jesus will give you all that. Just believe hard enough. Do you need the cross for that? When it's our desire to, to pursue the American dream, to secure our American prosperity, to have our way of life, and Jesus fits comfortably into that, where is the cross? If our understanding of, of, uh, of faith is being moral, just... Just showing up, doing church, being moral, following the right examples, uh, saying the right things. Where's the cross in that? Do you need the cross of Christ to pursue what you think is the greatest deliverance of your life? Is the cross central to your Jesus? Did he need to die for you? Or could you have taken door number B and been fine and had all you wanted, had all you needed? A Christ that must die, a Christ that must go to the cross, means this sin is the problem. Sin is the biggest problem. Without a solution to sin, all other solutions, all other goods are temporary and not worthwhile. Because until sin is truly dealt with, the ruler of this world is the evil one. And the destiny of all of us is away from God. You see, a comfortable Jesus doesn't make us the problem. A Jesus that goes to the cross reminds us and requires us to come to this fact. We are the enemy that God is dealing with. It is because we are sinners that Jesus had to go to the cross. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see Paul recognizes that when Christ was crucified that was his crucifixion. That was what was due his sins. We lose the comfortable Jesus when we recognize that the only Jesus that came and the Jesus that we need is the Jesus who came to give his life for yours. Not to give you a better car, not to give you health, not to give you a pat on the back, but to give his life for yours. That's the only Jesus on offer. Every other Jesus is comfortable. This Jesus says, I came because you are a sick sinner that needs to be saved. And if I do not give my life for yours, you are damned. There is no comfortable Jesus when we recognize Jesus must go to the cross. When we recognize this, we discover a very key point. Discipleship is not lordship by consent. We do not follow Jesus because we're on the same agenda, because we're partners towards the same cause. We don't follow Jesus because it gives us warm fuzzies. We are not following Jesus by consent. That's comfortable. Because at any point that Jesus makes a command that is too hard to follow, you say, "Well, you know what? I'm going to shift over here a little bit. I'm going to go quiet. I'm not going to take the cost of discipleship that far." But when we recognize that the comfortable Jesus is not the Jesus that we have, but the Jesus of the cross, we recognize that his life for me means that discipleship is my life for him. With no limits, no restrictions, nothing withheld. If he says move your family, you move. He says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. You sell everything you have and you give it to the poor. That's what the real Jesus is. Not a comfortable Jesus. A Jesus that gave his life for you that you receive because you give your life to him with no limits. And that is why we come now to the third crucial death that brings us into gospel life. And that is the death of cheap faith. The death of cheap faith. And here we look at verses 34 to 38. What what is cheap faith? What is cheap faith? Cheap faith is faith that doesn't cost you anything. Faith that doesn't cost you anything. It's, it's nominalism. It's the words, yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But never, ever in a place where it's uncomfortable or in a place where it's unaccepted. It's faith that doesn't cost anything. It's funeral faith. It's the amazing faith and assurance of salvation that shows up at every funeral regardless of how little fruit, little recognition of the gospel we saw in the person's life that is being remembered. But we can say, oh, that person's in a better place now. That is cheap faith. And that is faith that we cannot proclaim if we are proclaiming the gospel faith. And it's important to recognize when we talk about cheap faith that we are not at all talking against the freeness of the gospel. The gospel is free. We're told in Romans six twenty three, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The grace of God is free, which is to say it is given to you without requirements, without uh, having any merit, without having to do anything to receive it. It is given to you freely to put your faith in, to receive, to trust in, to have. There's no hoop you have to jump through. It is given to you. Everything that you need to be saved in Christ has been given to you in Christ. However, all of that being said does not make it cheap. It does not make it cheap. It does not make it something that we can handle with disdain, that we can be minimalist towards. When we recognize what the gospel is, we receive it at the cost of our life. We give our life when we come to faith to Jesus. Anything less than that is cheap faith. And it is not the faith that the gospel calls us to. So how does Jesus describe faith? Look at verse 34 with me. Look at verse 34 again. This is Jesus' definition of faith. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone, meaning anybody, there's no outside of that, nothing outside of that statement, everybody falls in. anyone. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus describes faith as a call to die for him. That's that's the words he uses, You, you die for me. Anyone. There's no exclusions. This is the entry point. All who enter the gospel enter here. There's no second path. There's no curve for those who came in uh, unwilling to take these terms. We're told to deny ourselves. Deny ourselves. This is the word that Peter uses when he denies Jesus three times. It means to utterly forsake means to just completely deny. It is not what we're talking about when we think about giving up chocolate for Lent. When Jesus says deny yourself, he's not deny yourself something you enjoy. He is saying deny yourself as Lord. Deny yourself as sovereign and autonomous. You are now Christ. Christ leads you. Christ determines what's good for you. Christ sets right and wrong for you. That is what it means to deny self. You are no longer part of the discussion. Christ says go. The disciple goes. It is not lordship by consent. Carrying the cross. I I wish that meant just buying pretty jewelry. I I wish that we could carry the cross by buying a a, a gold necklace with a cross on it. I wish that was what it was because most of us could pass that test. But the brutal fact is when Jesus says carry the cross he wasn't speaking with metaphors he was pointing them to the most gruesome shameful, atrocious instrument of death that existed and it would shock and and cause them to shudder carry the cross to go down the gauntlet of spit and rebuke And hatred to end on a cross, nailed hands and feet in open shame. He is saying that is what the path of discipleship looks like. We can't make this term cute. This isn't your sore hip. This isn't dealing with diabetes as, as, you know, We deal with things, but when Jesus is talking about bearing the cross, he is talking about walking the walk of shame in this world that may come for being faithful. Follow me. Follow me. That's the definition. We go where he leads. Now, where does Jesus go? He goes to the cross. If we follow Jesus, we follow him to the cross. Meaning we don't know ourselves outside of knowing ourselves through the cross. The cross that paid for our sins and that may in fact be where we are called to go. For Jesus, faith is discipleship. Faith is following Jesus. Faith is is aptly summarized in Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, where he summarizes this passage and says these Often familiar words, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. These are serious words. And if I could jujitsu these and make them something else, I'd love to. But these are the words of discipleship. These are the call Of Christ. And if there is something, I think, to to cheer us up a little bit as we think about this. Not that I, I feel that we need to be cheered, but as we go to verses 35 to 38, we discover when we give up cheap faith, when we put to death cheap faith, we inherit the treasure of true faith. We inherit the treasure of true faith. These words are quite similar to what Jesus teaches in the pearl of great price in Matthew chapter 13, 45 and 46. Let me read those for us. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What Jesus wants us to recognize in these verses, which are stark, is that the kingdom is so valuable Having Jesus is so precious that it is worth every sacrifice. The sacrifice of your life, the sacrifice of your name, the sacrifice of your own glory. None of that will compare to the unsearchable riches that are ours when Christ looks down upon us and says, Well done. Enter into the joy of your master. And you come to see him face to face. There is no comparison. So it means that we live and die for the life he gives. How many of us would give up mortal life for eternal life? You know, that's like giving up bread in our pantry that's going to expire in a week for a lifetime supply of bread that will never expire. I mean, Who wouldn't take that? Our lives are precious to us, I understand. But the the connection is that the life that is being given in the gospel is so much more grand, so much more precious, so much more enduring that it is worth losing your life to it. It is like Jim Elliot, the great missionary, says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It means that we live and die for the glory that he brings. He says that he will receive us in the glory of his angels before his father. If we're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. So decide now, whose face do you want turning away from you? Do you want to avoid at all costs people turning their face away from you because you're the Christian in the workplace? Or because you can't do the unethical business dealing or because you're drawing a line in your relationship because that is beyond the, the, the command of Christ. We are to keep ourselves pure. Are you going to lose the boyfriend and take the shame? Or is that too much? Fix your eyes, though, on the face of Christ. Do you want to meet Christ's face beaming upon you? full of joy at your faithfulness, full of joy at your steadfastness, with a smile, or do you want him to turn his face and say, I never knew you. You never knew me. I never knew you. The picture of Stephen when he is being stoned in the book of Acts is the promise for every single one of us. Christ stood up and looked down in favor, in defense Of Stephen while he was being stoned, and he knew that he was going straight into the glory of Christ. I hope that that is what you want to pursue. Pursue the glory that Christ will give you, even if it costs you the loss of all approval from your friends, family, or country. So there are three crucial deaths that bring us into gospel life the death of Christ for us, the death of our comfortable Jesus, and the death of cheap faith. But with those deaths comes meaningful life and purpose. What are you giving your life to? The next big truck? The bigger house? More Facebook friends? The approval of a boyfriend or girlfriend? Listen to the difference when you give yourself to Christ. Paul is our example in Philippians 3, 7. Whatever gain I had, and he listed much, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul speaks from experience. He's lost everything, but having Christ as a surpassing worth that he wouldn't trade for any treasure in the world, discipleship then, as we conclude, is a call to give yourself to Christ. It's the only thing that we can give ourselves to that will never disappoint us. My friends, have you entered, have you truly entered into the life of the gospel? Have you put to death your comfortable Jesus? Have you put to death cheap faith? These Are the price, but on the other side is great glory and great life, and it's for you freely in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We do thank you that you do not sugarcoat the gospel, but you make it clear. Just as we know how serious it is to be a disciple that it costs the death of your son, that it costs the death of us for him, that we know that that price is paid because the glory of having Christ forever, of having you forever, of being in glory, is is, is worth it and is beautiful, is beautiful beyond anything we can compare It is the most precious pearl that is worthy of buying everything, selling everything that we have to own it, to have it in our possession. I pray, Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus through this gospel, who has not received the good news of the cross and seen the cross as the most needed thing in his life, for her life that you would bring that person to come to you to cry out for mercy to begin the walk of faith we pray this in the name of your son jesus amen thank you for listening we hope you've been blessed by this sermon from river community church we are a congregation of the evangelical presbyterian church located in prairieville louisiana whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.